We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering, as we do each week, to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion. We'd love to hear what you're thinking, too. Go to our community's Facebook page. Post your thoughts. This is the community meeting. There's an edited-down version under a bit, some news you can watch. Uh, we're reimagining together how we're going to do church. I'll be updating you as our conversations begin to solidify and they become plans. But today, something a little bit more pressing. I don't know exactly when we'll gather in person. I suspect it'll be soon. I suspect it'll happen in small degrees at a time. And when we do, we're going to need to think about our teenagers. Michael has been meeting with our teens online, and he's done a really great job. But he's been doing it from Michigan. <laughs> yeah, he moved. <clears throat> so when we come back, we're going to need uh, a permanent and hopefully long-term teen leader to love our kids. We'll be looking for somebody to be with us for many years, a steady, caring presence in their lives. And highest on our list of requisite skills is someone who's good at creating authentic, healthy community with teenagers. Now, in the past, we've gone to local seminaries looking for someone with religious training, but that has not gone well. So we're going to look for someone who's good at community. And here's the requirement is really has no religious background requirement at all. As long as they're open to me talking with them about how to think about and how to talk about what we weirdly call quantum spirituality, if they're teachable, we're going to approach it backwards and try to come at it from that direction. Someone who is good at building community with teenagers. They can learn to teach spirituality on the job. So I've been talking with Michael and I've been talking with a few folks, and they've suggested that maybe we look for people with skills that they picked up, perhaps working with teenagers at the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club, or maybe teachers are looking for a part-time gig. And it is. It's a part-time. It would be a side gig, but it's important uh, side work. So do you know somebody? Could you help me out? Could you make an introduction? Uh, if you would, use the Contact Us button on our website, and your note will eventually get to me. Thanks so much. And again, more updates as we find out more. Okay, <clears throat> let's start our lesson this morning. I am going to ruin this video for you. If you haven't seen it before, many have seen it. The video starts with an assignment. Count how many times the young women in white shirts pass the basketball. Now, it's going to take a little bit of focus because the women in the black shirts, they're also passing the basketball at the same time. But at about the 30-second mark, and you watch for it, a guy in a gorilla suit is going to walk through the screen. And half of the people who are watching the video who don't know about the gorilla guy, they don't see it happen. <coughs> but this video's been out there for a while now, so a lot of folks do know about the gorilla, and so they look for it. Well, uh, in this video, uh, as soon as the gorilla guy is walking through the screen, the curtain changes color. It goes from red to orange, and one of the players leaves the game. But because we're counting the number of passes or because we're looking for the gorilla guy, we don't see either of those things when they happen. And it is a basic truism about human nature, that what we see depends on what we're looking for. It's a basic truism about human nature, that what we see depends on what we're looking for. And here's the thing about our Easter story. It tells us what to look for. Hey, it's going to be really easy to miss, Easter tells us. So 
Look for the guy in the gorilla suit. <laughs> change what you look for, and you do change what you see. If we look for love, we'll see it. It's there. If we look for hatred, we'll see that too. Also there. Now, for the newcomers, if you know our community, you know we've been rethinking our religion for some time, trying our best to hold on to the beauty and the wisdom of the past, but scrape off some of the barnacles that get attached over time. And our digging into work, our reimagining work, it began with the Easter story. So if you grew up in church, there's a good chance that your Easter story centers on Jesus died for our sin, which in a moment I am going to say is a beautiful story. But I won't say that until first I say it's also an ugly story, horribly ugly story. So newcomers, especially if you grew up in church, I'm a little concerned for you today. We spent a long time studying and reading and digging into our history. We spent a long time adjusting to a fundamentally upended religious story. We'd internalized one for a lifetime. Then we deconstructed and we explored and we reimagined and we reconstructed. And I had a decade to get my head around the story that I'm going to tell you today. And it is beautiful. It is. But it's also a very difficult adjustment for a lot of people. So. If after today you're troubled, maybe a little freaked, uh, use the contact us button. We can talk. At least I can give you stuff to read. Well, here we go with the ugly story about Jesus dying for our sin. It goes something like this. God, a father figure in this story, creates the world and creates everything in it. And he does it with total power, and total knowledge of everything that is and everything that ever will be. And as he makes everything, he puts a set of rules in place, one of which shapes our Easter story. And that rule starts with, look guys, <coughs> I made this thing perfect, a garden of delight. But you hoodlums, you did the one thing I told you never to do. And when you did, you broke the whole damn thing. So the rules say, now somebody has to die. In fact, the whole lot of you. Not only the yahoos who ate the stupid apple, but every child, born of every child, in perpetuity forever. Because, you know, the wages of sin require you must now die. You now carry that fatal sin flaw. You now carry an incorrigible nature. And you must all pay the price for your helpless estate. It is pretty dire for you. Pretty dire. But, Father figure God says, I'm not heartless. I don't want it to go this badly for you, so here's what I'm going to do. Somebody still has to die, the rules, you know. Blood has to be shed, but instead of the whole lot of you, I'm going to put my perfect, not tainted the way you are tainted nature into this man, Jesus. <clears throat> then he'll wind things back to the way they were before you all broke the universe. And then, doing you a favor here, I'll kill him. I'll shed his blood. And he will become a sacrifice and take your place. He'll be the perfect human version with my perfect nature inside of all those goats and all those sheep that you've been killing for all those years to get your sins forgiven. And you don't have to worry about him. I'll raise him from the dead. It's going to end up fine for him too. So with this new plan, all you have to do is pray the prayer. 
Easy, right? Show the proper gratitude, accept my free gift to you, and then when you die, you can come on up to heaven and be with me. But if you don't, well, why would you even consider that? Eternity separated from me, why would you? Separated from goodness and separated from light and love, you, you just wouldn't do that. But if you do, banishment forever. Exile, outer darkness, lake of fire, eternal torment. Oh, and, and by the way, I love you. <laughs> now, let's be fair. Growing up in church, I didn't, I bet you didn't either, ever hear the Easter story told that way. What I heard was much more beautiful. It was a story about sacrificial love, and it was a story about receiving a precious gift, and it was about having been given much to be paying it forward, living sacrificially on behalf of others. That's the story that was told to me, and it was a story about the obligation we all carry to pay love forward. But the problem with that is just because we didn't say the ugly parts out loud, they don't go away. They just sit down there, hidden, silently, leaking poison into our souls. Because in this story, say it out loud or not, father figure God, all-powerful, all-knowing, wasn't bound to the rules. He makes the rules. And he decided that death and blood sacrifice, that'd be a good one. If you sin, and I know you're going to, somebody's going to suffer. Somebody's going to bleed. Somebody's going to die. Those are my rules. But you might have asked yourself when you were younger, I did, why? Why that rule? Why not grace? Seems important in our scriptures. Why not mercy? Why not forgiveness? Why not redemption without blood, without death, without penalty? So listen, all-powerful father figure God, you designed the rules from scratch and that's what you come up with? You got to admit, God, it's just a little bit Nazi. <laughs> but it gets worse. If father figure God is all-knowing, then he knew that at least some of us would never pray the prayer. And he went ahead and he made us. Now again, we would never say it out loud, but the implication is pretty clear. At least some of us, God created for the express purpose of eternally torturing us. Now, maybe God is human-shaped, and maybe God is a Nazi father figure, and maybe we should be existentially afraid. Because either we do live in an ugly reality governed by an ugly story, or as we've spent years imagining together, maybe we got our Easter story wrong. Because that story, once it gets inside of us, goes a long way to explaining the Crusades. <laughs> when we change what we look for, it changes what we see. And if our Easter story tells us to look for a mean-spirited God who says love, 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 but really keeps us in line with the threat of violence, well, a lot of religious folk do find what they look for. You tell that story, and eventually it does shape who we become. But as it does so often, history rides to our rescue. Because our story need not be that one. 
our Easter story need not be that story. Now, if you were a doctrine geek, that story is called the penal substitution theory of the atonement. You do not need to know that. <laughs> what you need to know is it began as a metaphor, one of seven, that early Christian used to describe a life-altering experience. They had together, collectively, this profound awakening changed lives, what we now call salvation. It was a mind-blowing transformation that was so hard to explain, they resorted to as many metaphors as they could find. Seven of them have survived to us. This was one of them. Somebody said, it's like I was on death row. That's how bad it felt before I had this awakening. And then Easter, and then somehow I was sprung loose, no longer facing that mortality. Again, it started as a metaphor, but over time it devolved into a doctrine. And after that, it became a truth that got fixed in our heads. And that's why I feel a little bit bad for newcomers, because you might be coming into this with that fixed in your head as a truth, not realizing that it was a metaphor to try and explain an experience. It didn't start as a doctrine, it started as a story, but around the 11th century, a guy named Anselm started telling the Easter story to folks who were living in a feudal society with capricious leaders, and for them, law and order was a brand new and novel concept. And law and order was just coming and giving them this life, salvation from capricious tyranny that the monarch can do whatever the monarch wants to do whenever the monarch wants to. The feudal lord can do whatever the feudal lord wants to do. And now we've got law and order that protects us. And so Anselm tried to tell our Easter story in a way that said, it's like that. God has a law and God enforces order. And he'll even use punishment to do it. And so we are not subject to the whims and impulses of, of some fickle feudal lord or some devil. No, we are protected by law and order, God's law, God's order. And shedding blood and punishment for evil, what a relief for them in their world. But for us, not so helpful anymore. We don't live in that world any longer. So back to the metaphors. That one was just one. We have many different metaphors to describe a life-altering experience, different ways that we've told how the Easter story awakens us to newness of life. Now, most of them, no blood sacrifice at all. One of, the, one of them, again, you do not need to know this, it's called the moral influence theory of the atonement. <laughs> this story, really, if you distill it down, it's about seeing the light. It was our dominant story until the shedding blood story took over. Another term, here's one you never need to know, the patristic fathers. <laughs> they were the second generation of writers. There was a whole bunch of writers who we, we collected their stuff into the New Testament. And then the generation after that, from about the year 100 through the year 400, they were called the patristic fathers. You might run into their names sometime. Justin, Origen, Irenaeus, Clement, Basil. For them, seeing the light... That was the dominant Easter story. I was blind, but Jesus' life and death opened my eyes. It was a story about darkness and light, blindness and sight. Salvation, the great waking up, was like having stumbled in the dark for a long time until somebody turned on the lights. It was what Jesus taught, eyes that see. Because if we see differently, we live differently. 
the enemies of our souls, violence and vengeance and hatred and domination, what we call sin, when we were in the dark, they appear to rule us. But once the lights come on, we see they are much weaker than we thought they were. There is a reality, once the lights are on, that is much deeper. There is a truth that is much truer. Jesus' life and death, our Easter story, unmasks sin and death as imposters. Pufferfish. They look so big, they look so fierce, but inside, empty, impotent, feeble. But it's only when we're in the dark that they look so daunting. When we see through the eyes of truth, they're more show than they are substance once the lights come on. The problem we spend so much time in the dark, so much time with the lights off. So, early on, they grappled to describe their experience of the lights coming on. And what they said was, we took a look at Jesus and we saw what we so often don't see. And when we saw, we began to live a different way. We began to die a different way. We began to love a different way because seeing Jesus live a truly spiritual life, drawing from an inner source, the indwelling spirit, it unmasked our illusion because that same inner source, that same spirit, Jesus said, Paul said, isn't only in Jesus, it's in every one of us. And when the lights come on, we begin to see that. Well, that Easter story tells us where to look for treasure. We call it the inward journey. We seek out the divine within. And when we begin to look there, within, generation after generation has found what the first generation found. We find what we're looking for. That's the affirmation that we make at the end of every service. We are, every one of us, carriers of the inner light, carriers of the Holy Spirit, carriers of the same light that we saw in Jesus. Well, in this Easter story, when Jesus lived and died, it saved us by turning on the lights so we could see, see clearly what had been hidden in the darkness. Sure, sin is, and it will destroy everything you love. Sure, arrogance and pride and hatred and selfishness, they are. But deeper still is divine light, and it is in us. Well, that Easter story, our earliest Easter story, tells us where to look for the divine. Not out there somewhere in some disembodied place called heaven, but at the deepest center of our lives where the divine spark is, where the Holy Spirit is. This story of salvation invites us to see, invites us to recognize what already is, what always has been. The inner light breathed into us at our creation has never been extinguished. Boy, it sure feels like it has been extinguished on our dark days when the lights are off, but it is there for those who have eyes to see. Soul sickness is a function of soul blindness. So when we say Jesus died for our sins, the metaphor of some great legal blood price paid on our behalf, that's not as helpful for me, maybe not for you as well. But the lights turned on. The enemies of my soul unmasked. 
pointed to the interior light, that has helped me profoundly. That story, told that way, it is a bedrock in our tradition. Again, I told you, it was our earliest story, and yet writing it down in a book got me kicked out of our very conventional Christian denomination. And I do understand why. Because seeing does not feel very powerful. Now, a story in which we've got sin in our DNA and blood must be shed and there's a penalty for death, boy, that feels like some serious medicine for a serious soul sickness. But seeing, not as powerful as blood sacrifice. But here's what we miss. Seeing is powerful. Seeing something that cannot be unseen profoundly changes us. It's a powerful metaphor for a great awakening, for salvation, and it has been attested to by countless generations gone before us. They looked where the story told them to look, and they found what the very first generation found when they looked. And when our closing ritual invites us to look every week with our hand on our heart, inside, we remember that we are, every one of us, carriers of the inner light, Members of this church are not carriers of the inner light. Part of our religion or not, we are, every one of us, carriers of the divine spark, carriers of love and peace and kindness and courage and goodness, life and light. It is in us. It always has been, even when the lights were off. And so, each week, we also extend our other hand to our city to remind us to look for opportunities to share the light that is within us with those that we live with and work with, go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. Well, if you would, please prepare your tithes and offerings. And as you're doing that, uh, let me remind you that investing in spiritual community has a great return on investment. Every unit of love and time and energy and the dollars that it takes that we invest in community returns to us profoundly by shaping the context in which we live. So, Scott said a couple of weeks ago we were behind the first two months, and he said, please, let's not go behind more. So if you're behind on your giving, please catch up. And that being said, what are you thinking about? What is stirring up in your heart? Dean, what are folks thinking about? So Joe Parker says... From the film Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, there's a quote says, in our obsession with original sin, we too often forget original innocence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, uh, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon is about Francis of Assisi. And when you look, when, when you are looking for the story that I just told, you can go all the way back to the Patristic Fathers, or you can pay attention to the contemplative communities, the monastic communities, the cloistered communities, monks and nuns who lived the contemplative life. They tuned into it very quickly because when we still our souls and listen within, we find that the divine spark is within. And Francis is a great example of that. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Uh, here's one. Uh, Robin Camus says... Help me connect the dots. How does death and resurrection of Jesus tell the story that God lives within me? <clears throat> so, hey, I wrote a book about this, <laughs> and there are four chapters just answering that question. Let me see if I can distill it down into some bullet points. When we look at our story of sin and salvation, 
it has a lot to do with how we first define human nature. And when we define human nature according... So, so here's the, the biggest... Here's what I thought was the most controversial thing that I wrote in the book. It was to challenge Augustine. Because Augustine was the one who started with this concept of original sin. And what that story tells us is once sin happened in the garden, the divine breath that put the spark of God within human beings was taken out, and in its place was this ugly, ugly sin consciousness. And so now we carry that around, and for us to be saved, we must now take that out, or we must cover it over, it must be hidden. That Our story of salvation was originated uh, in our story about human nature, about who we are. Are we totally sinful? That, you know, if you're going to get freaked out, that's the thing to get freaked out about. That our Jewish tradition and our monastic tradition and the Eastern Orthodox tradition and our Quaker tradition, many traditions don't buy Augustine. And so when we start there with ugly, ugly sin consciousness being the defining center of who we are, then we need the uh, death and resurrection of Christ to come and deal with that sin nature. And it happens by this substitutionary atonement, by the blood of Jesus covers us over. That's the way the story goes. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard that story multiple times. But the reason that Origen and the reason that uh, Justin and the reason that Clement uh, and Basil, the reason that those early writers didn't tell that story but instead told the story of oh, my eyes have been opened, all oh, the lights have been turned on, was because they didn't start with Augustine's premise. They started with sin being the veneer on the outside but the defining essence of who we are being the breath of God that was put within us, the divine center, the spark at the beginning. That was their framing narrative. That was their uh, myth of origins. That's what we would call it. And if that's the case, then you don't have to deal with the core. You deal with the veneer. It still has to be dealt with because, like I said during the lesson, sin will destroy everything you love. It will. And it has to be dealt with. But it doesn't have to be dealt with in terms of going to the center, pulling out, extracting the, the, the center of who we are and replacing it with something new and different. It has to do with awakening to what is. And so we see the life of Jesus. We see the sacrificial life of Jesus. We see this exemplary spiritual man tapped into this divine center, Jesus. And our eyes are opened. We see him on the cross. We see him uh, with the, this expression of selflessness and love. And we see him in his quiet times looking within to draw from in the silent places. And we say, ah, oh, what Paul said, that same spirit that was in Jesus is also in me. And then we go and look. And when we go and look, salvation. Well, that's not the answer. That's not the truth. That's not the doctrine. It's a metaphor. And what metaphors do is they point us toward experience. And for a lot of years, for a lot of people, I was on death row and I've been sprung was a metaphor that pointed them to powerful and profound experience. But for a lot of us, I'm one of them, that story stopped working for me and I was ready to chuck it all. Except history. I found out that there's a lot of metaphors. And this one of the lights coming on and being awakened to what is already there within, that I have found very, very helpful. By the way, there's five more 
That's just two of the metaphors. <laughs> and did I mention I wrote a book? Anything else? Yeah, I want to give you a couple of comments kind of all together. Angie Scioli started out by saying the Easter story sounds a lot like the Siddhartha story. Um, I followed up with the comment that our context is always influenced by our stories, uh, how we see them, how we see our place in them, and then also the commented on the, the, our cultural stories of origin. There's so many similarities uh, between our different cultures, many more than our differences. And Anschioli followed up with a last uh, comment that said, in the marketplace of ideas and quotes, it's hard to believe that Augustine won the day. It's a crappy story. wonder what the heck was going on <laughs> to explain how that story prevailed. Well, I'll tell you what was going on. Rome was going on. And uh, here's the thing. If, uh, if Rome is founded on the premise, we're coming to your place, we're going to take your land, and we're going to crush your lives. If that's the starting premise, it's kind of helpful to have a story that says, but we're going to give you heaven. And, yeah, we're going to take everything you've got. But you know what? It's worthless anyway. You know what? The world's not precious. It's not pulsating with the breath of the divine. And you, you know, your ugly, ugly sin consciousness, it's all going to burn anyway. So we're actually doing you a favor here. And by the way, we'll take your land. <laughs> so that concept that Augustine posited took place within a historical context. And we don't live in that historical context. We can go back and we can find what was going on before that. And we can find life in that. So a couple more. Uh, Joe Parker says, uh, just commented, said, the great, great debate between Augustine and Pelagius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sharif Vodica says, yes, it's interesting that we've gravitated towards the negatively framed story rather than the assets-based approach of the divine already within each of us. Yeah. And Sky just made a, uh, uh, hey, a comment here. And uh, what she said was, okay, so I'm getting the death resurrection stories unnecessary from this other perspective. But to Robin's point, now the death of Jesus feels like needless, pointless suffering. And then one gets into the nature of God still feeling terrible. And then one starts feeling like atheism sounds appealing. Okay, did I mention I wrote a book? <laughs> because, uh, yeah. All of these, uh, remember when I told you a lot of folks who come to Common Thread do have trouble with Easter, and it is because of the mechanics, and it is because of the doctrine. It's really true, and I know what your pain is because I've gone through all this process uh, myself. And so uh, if you're interested, uh, here, so, yeah, there's not enough time for that. Okay. Come on up, friends. You're going to sing now. <laughs> and while they're coming, uh, if you're a newcomer, I am, like I said during the lesson, I am really feeling for you. But one of the starting premises that we began with, and may I encourage you to read the book. I mean, I, before I was joking. Now I'm not even joking. Uh, if, I, if I had it to write again, I would use 20% fewer words. So let me apologize right up front. But... I wrote it for people who um, grew up in the same church that I grew up in. Grew up in the same story, the same narrative that I grew up in. And so I used the same documentation that we were familiar with, that we were comfortable with. And I wrote the story for you because I know this stuff is troubling. 
I know this stuff is, uh, um, is really challenging and difficult. I, it's more than just the content. It's the visceral, emotional sense of, oh my God, I've been betrayed, or oh my God, I've been sold a bill of goods, or there's so much going on here. So, may I encourage you. The book's called Rethinking Our Story. The subtitle is, Can We Still Be Christian in the Quantum Era? And you can get it at Amazon. All right, my friends, let us remember the magic. We got the mechanics. Yeah, that's a challenge. But let's remember the magic. The magic is that when it is dark, light can be seen. All right, my friends, God bless you. We're dismissed, but before you go, have a listen. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. You can go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is at the top of the page for your computer's browser, at the bottom of the page for your phones. 